Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. My name is Matthew, and I'm the pastor here at Trinity Eastside. You, if you're paying close attention to the video, may notice that I apparently just had a wardrobe change, and that's because the worship that we used for this week's service actually came from October 25th. It was filmed on October 22nd, and we had to use it because we found out yesterday that Micah had potentially been exposed to COVID, and we had to change a bunch of stuff about the shoot. And the reason I'm telling you all that is because I just want to acknowledge this has been a really, really hard season for us as a church, and I just want to... Thank you for going along with us on this. I know that this is not what any of us imagined as church, and yet um, I just, it means so much to to me, to Jenny, to our staff, the feedback that you've given us, it's been so generous and kind and encouraging, and um, so thank you for just being in this weird time with us. Um, I want to, before we jump into today's sermon, I want to take a brief moment and of course address what we talked about on Tuesday night. If you are not aware of this yet, uh, Chris and I announced on Tuesday night that after several months of discernment, we'd come to the conclusion that the next step for the parish model, which is the, the model that really birthed our church here on the east side, was for the east side and then for each other parish to in time graduate from Trinity and become its own self-governed Anglican church connected to Trinity in a network, um, relational network that's going to be uh, very much of our own mutuality and, and, and shared mission. And yet at the same time, we're going to be uh, led and governed by people who live over here on the east side of town. And this for us was a long process and something we're very excited about. And yet we know for all of you who just found out, it's, a, it's the beginning of a process of now like feeling all that and like coming to, to terms with all that. And so tonight, as Jenny mentioned already, we're going to be doing a Q&A that's really going to be just the first uh, follow-up where we get to talk more in depth about what this is going to mean for us. We're going to share with you our new name, which I'm very excited to share with you. Um, and we're going to just open it up to questions. So if you have a question, please do send it in. You can, you can do that through the link in your email, go to the upcoming events. You can even be sending in questions during the Q&A, just use that form and it'll be populating on our end and we'll be able to see what those questions are and we'll answer as many of them um, as possible. So what we're going to do is we're going to jump into today's uh, text. Um, We're in Mark 1 still and uh, I just invite you to open your Bibles if you have them. We're going to read verses 14 uh, to 20. Now, after John, that's the baptizer, was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe in the good news. And as Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And he went a little further and he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boats mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus, we, uh, we thank you that you uh, have come to proclaim a kingdom and to call us into it and... Um, Lord, we pray that we would have eyes to see you and your kingdom for what it is and that we would have then the faith that we need to respond to it. So God, um, help, help the, the message today, which could just so easily live in our brains. Lord, I pray that it would sink down into our hearts and then into our fingertips and our, 
right? and into our feet, that we would become the hands and feet of Jesus doing and being the work of God on the earth um, as a response to the call of Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Um, so one of the things that I love so much about Mark, and you'll, you'll, you'll get this as we're spending a lot of time this year in Mark, is his pace. He's just very fast-paced. He's always, he flies through the story. Um, one, one thing after another, one of Mark's signature words, uh, one of the ways you just know you're probably reading a Mark verse is he uses the word immediately. The word immediately uh, shows up 58 times in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is by far the shortest, briefest of those four Gospels, but 41 of the 58 uses of that word show up in his book. He's just going from one thing to the next. We're um, like today, we're 14 verses into Mark's gospel and three major things have already happened and two more major things are going to happen in our, in our story today. And like if we were reading Luke, he would still be introducing his research process. Like it's just very, very rapid because Mark is on a mission. He wants to uh, succinctly and artfully get across to you and to me the proclamation, what he's here to tell us, what is the truth, what is the gospel, and this is, <clears throat> this is what he's doing, and he's just flying through it. So we're going to just jump right in. I have four things from this text that I want us to, to think about. Remember, what we're looking at this year as a church is what does it mean that Jesus is the truth? What does that tell us about um, what we're supposed to be thinking, how it's supposed to be forming our mind? And so um, with that sort of as a, as a so set up, let's look at what Mark is telling us today about Jesus. The first thing that we see in this is that the story comes to us right out of the chute with a political backdrop. John the baptizer has been arrested by Herod uh, under charges of sedition. He's been arrested because he's been teaching uh, his followers, his disciples, that Herod's marriage to his brother's wife is unlawful in God's kingdom and uh, that, it's, that it's wrong, it should be rejected. And that doesn't make Herod or even more importantly, his wife very happy. And so John ends up in prison. Jesus, as a response to this or immediately following this, decides to go to Galilee. Now, Galilee is where Jesus' hometown was, Nazareth, the, the little village where Jesus grew up with, with Joseph and Mary and his, his brothers and sisters. But but more than that, Galilee was this, this rustic, rural area, hill country to the north of Judea. But it wasn't just like this quaint, little, sweet, you know, farm area. It was actually, interestingly, the Galilee was um, the hotbed for political insurgency in Jesus' day. It was actually known as the hideout and the, and the, uh, the, the, the launching ground for the insurgency movements, the zealot movements of Jesus's day. It was the place where bandits hid out because it was a natural hiding place, the hill country up in the Galilee. So when people talked about Galileans, there was actually a political undertone to it. They were the outsiders. They were the ones who were opposed to the system. They were the ones who were, who were against, uh, you know, the things as they were. And so Jesus going up to the Galilee um, has, whether we would know this or not, some immediate political undertones to it. Um, Judas the Galilean was a very famous bandit from this time who started a big uprising. So this is, this is how you have to imagine it coming to the ears of the, of the authorities in Jerusalem and, and, and outside of that, that a, a itinerant, self-proclaimed, uneducated rabbi goes to the Galilee, begins to amass uh, um, thousands of followers around his teaching about the incoming, uh, inbreaking kingdom of God, and... Um, 
the overthrowing of current kingdoms with this new kingdom, and people will travel days and weeks at a time in order to be close to this, this, this person, this proclaimer, this teacher, this prophet up in the Galilean hill country. So everyone who would have heard this would have understood that there's something overtly political about what's happening here. This isn't merely spiritual. Jesus never had a, a, just a particularly spiritual ministry. There was something always very on the ground about it too. We need to remember that at Jesus's trial, the, the final word from the Pharisees to, to Pilate that really sealed Jesus's doom, it cinched the knot, was when they said to Pilate, if you let this man go, then you are, you're saying that it's okay for there to be another king besides Caesar. We believe Caesar is the only true king, but you're saying there's actually more than one king, more than one Caesar on the earth. This whole story has to be understood and read through this lens that Jesus came to do something that was, yes, spiritual, deeply spiritual, moral and ethical, but also deeply political, which is why, second thing we see, Jesus' message is about a kingdom, that Jesus actually came first and foremost to talk about a kingdom. He, um, this is the heart of his message, not just in Mark's gospel, in Matthew and Luke as well. John a little bit, it's, it's not quite as clear in John, but certainly in what's called the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, Jesus is here to talk about a kingdom. Now, what does that mean for you and me? Well, a kingdom uh, implies many things. Uh, we've been talking about the kingdom for months here at, at, east, at the east side, but a kingdom implies authority and rule. Um, a kingdom is not just like an idea. It's not a philosophy. It's not simply a way to live. It has an economy to it. It has um, a national defense. It has a justice system. It has a body of laws that lead and govern it. A kingdom is an established political entity. It has, uh, in that sense, like some real, like on the ground, holistic um, power to it. So when Jesus says the kingdom of God is here, he's not simply saying there's a new way to live your life. And if you follow me, it's, a, it's an interesting thing to consider. He's saying instead there is an inbreaking or an invasion even of like this other holistic power claim over the earth that God is actually king and not Caesar, not Herod. God is actually the one who is ruling the nations. A kingdom, of course, also implies that there is a king. A king is a, a central, a singular ruler over a kingdom. It's not a senate. It's not, it's not a council. Uh, it's not a democracy. There is one person calling the shots, which is, you know, of course, uh, terrifying in many ways because most kings are terrible people or they're power hungry or they're fearful or, or whatever. Um, but the kingdom of God implies that there is a single ruler uh, over this kingdom. So Jesus says the time is fulfilled, meaning that there was a time that was leading up to this and now we're here. And now on the other side of this, now the kingdom is like the thing that was on the horizon is now here in our face. Like it's no longer like off in the distance, like in the future on our calendars, but present day here right now. Something radical has shifted. The third thing we see in this is that this is for Jesus. This is what the gospel is. He says, repent and believe the good news. And remember from two weeks ago, good news, that's the euangelion. That's the gospel. The gospel for Jesus is that the kingdom of God is here. Now, this next section is going to be just a bit like theological Bible-ish, but just stick with me. Um, we're thinking about truth this year. We're thinking about how to think rightly. How do Christians understand ultimate reality? Um, these are really important questions for us because they will shape our behavior, our ethics, our morals. They'll shape our affections and the things that we love. So what does it mean that for Jesus, the good news or the gospel is 
uh, the kingdom. Well, when Christians talk about the gospel, especially in evangelical circles, which talk about a word that needs to be purified and resurrected, but uh, when we talk about it specifically in evangelical circles, we tend to mean a series of events that uh, Jesus died for our sins, but rose from the dead. And if we'll believe in that, we can be forgiven and we get to go to heaven when we die. That's like a really basic, like, like overly boiled down series of events that, that people would say, this is the core message of the gospel. And it's not that the gospel isn't those things. It's just that it has, that's not the central understanding of the gospel if you're Jesus of Nazareth. That's not how he understood it. Um, it's not how the early church understood it. In fact, even the apostle Paul, who is, if anyone is responsible for giving us that sort of simplistic reductionistic version of the gospel of just a series of events, you could maybe pin it on Paul. Even the apostle Paul at the end of the book of Acts, when he's already in Rome, he's in prison and he's towards the end of his ministry. This is how the book of Acts ends. It says that Paul lived in Rome for two years at his own expense. He welcomed all who came to him. And what was he doing there? proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So for even Paul, even Paul understood that the central heartbeat of of this good news is that God's kingdom had broken out onto the world, that there was a new authority, a new power, and that this now changed and shifted everything because a new power claim requires, in a sense, a decision about whether or not to give allegiance to this kingdom or to another. Now, why am I saying all this? Why am I dragging you through all this Bible stuff? Because I think um, it's really important for you and me to be aligned with Jesus's understanding of what the good news is. That it's not that it's not that it's not also true that there's a series of historical events on which we base our understanding of the story in which we're living in. Of course, it's true. And yet, for Jesus, the good news was that the true and ultimate kingdom, not a vast crushing empire, not a weak vassal kingdom but the true and ultimate authority over all the earth was now visible and it was visible in the person of Jesus. I said last week, but it bears repeating. The gospel is not simply what Jesus has done. The gospel is Jesus, that he is the embodiment of the kingdom. That's why he'll say all throughout his ministry, you find all over the gospels. He's always saying like, if I'm here, the kingdom's here. Because I'm sitting in your midst, the kingdom is in your midst. So Jesus is claiming as the king, the, the, the ability to say, I'm the full embodiment. I am the actualization, the materialization of the kingdom present in front of you right now. Jesus is the gospel, therefore, because he's the image of what God is like. He's the image of the invisible God. If I ever wonder what is the animating power behind the universe, I just have to go, oh, the animating power behind the universe is made manifest in Jesus of Nazareth, a person who always moves towards the poor and heals, who binds up the broken, who fights for the underdog, who, if anything, accuses the powerful for not using their power for the sake of others, who's willing to serve rather than to be served, uh, who comes to die for his enemies rather than uh, to demand vengeance. This is what the animating power behind all things is. And that is good news because it means that there is ultimate healing power and hope for all things. That the deep longing that is within you and me for a right sizing, for, a, for, for justice, that that is actually intrinsic to the heart of God, that that's what God is here to do. He is here to actually do the very things that you and I long for. So finally, we see in this story that Jesus gives us a response. He says that we should repent and believe the good news. 
And then immediately we go into a story where Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee and he meets two sets of brothers, James and John, Andrew and Peter, and he calls them to follow him. And it says they immediately get up, they leave their nets, they leave their dads, they leave their, their, their colleagues, and they follow after Jesus. They literally leave their jobs and they go after him. When we talk about repentance and belief, we tend to make them overly cerebral concepts, like that really what repentance and belief is something that just lives in the head. But um, in the Bible, repentance and belief are actually quite concrete words. They're things that actually show up tangibly in the life, and they're not simply things that like, can live inside the person. In the Gospel of Mark, uh, Luke, for example, John the Baptist says that we have to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. I mean, there's going to be a set of behaviors and actions that are going to be evidence that there has been repentance. Repentance isn't the action necessarily. It is the thing that is empowering or undergirding the action. And yet, um, it, without the action, there's no evidence that there's anything that's actually changed. Repentance is a, is a great little Greek word. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's this idea of re-examining my thinking, kind of laying my understanding of the world, of what's important and my priorities, and laying them on the table and re-examining them through a different lens, a new set of eyes. That set of eyes would be Jesus and his kingdom, what he says is ultimate, what his teaching is. And that is what repentance is, being willing to take my understanding of the world and just put it on the table and stand there next to Jesus and re-examine it. And then what's coming out of that most likely is the recognition like, oh, well, in these ways, I'm actually, I'm actually living more in light of like a kingdom in my own image than the kingdom that you're here to proclaim. And belief, therefore, is the decision. It's the decision to say, well, if that is true, then I'm going to act like that's true. I'm going to do something in response to that. So Jesus comes to these two brothers and he says, and they've been hearing his teaching. He's been in the area. He says, I want you to now come and be a part of what I'm doing. I want you to leave what you have going for you. And I want you to follow me. To repent, therefore, was to be willing to get up from what they were doing, what had seemed the most natural and common sense thing in the world, to, to carry on their father's business, to feed their families, in order to be close to this person. To believe is... Um, is, in this, is, is in this instance, it is made visible in the willingness to actually take steps towards Jesus, not to simply assent to something in the heart, but to get out of the boat and to begin to walk. If the kingdom is calling you and me, if the king calls you and me, we don't say, well, I'm intrigued by the invitation, but I'm also a practical person and I have mouths to feed. And so I, I hear you, that sounds good, but I first need to, in fact, Jesus addresses this again and again in the gospels. Like th what it means to follow him is to be willing to say, well, if the king is calling, that means the one who has ultimate claim over the world in my life is calling. So that means I have to be willing to, to follow him. Now, I love the purity of this scene because it just seems so clean. And so much of my life with following God doesn't look this clean. At the same time, I'm kind of glad God's never walked in the room and said, quit your job, follow me. That seems like that could be a hard thing to hear. But um, there is just a simplicity and a purity um, to what these disciples get to do in this moment. I envy it in many ways. For me, repenting and believing has actually been far more complex and I might even say uh, far more nuanced. I'm not, saying that I, um, I'm not saying that I always want it to be that simple, but there is something nice about it. 
I would bet that for you and me, the things that are before you right now that feel like where God is inviting you, they don't feel quite as clear as leaving your nets. But I also believe that the Spirit is probably saying something to you and me, even right now, that will require me to leave behind something, some thinking, some priority, some value in the pursuit of Jesus. And I have to decide if I'm willing to re-examine what has led me to where I am right now so that I can turn in a new direction and take a step not knowing what it will entail. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his um, great work, The Cost of Discipleship, says in the opening chapters that the cost of discipleship is a call into what he calls costly grace. He says it's costly because to follow Jesus will cost you everything. But he says it's grace because the one who is calling you is Jesus Christ. And what that means to me, and as, as I've thought about it for years now, is that the prize that is received by the sacrifice, by the letting go of something so that I can hold on to something else, is so much greater that it's like a grace no matter how high the price tag is. And this is in many ways what the wash, rinse, repeat cycle of the Christian life is. There's always, um, in Lewis's words, further up and further in to go. There's always more to know. There's always there's always a deeper experience of God and a deeper life of holiness to be achieved. And there's always in the process of moving further up and further in the willingness to release and let go and lay down and repent and reexamine. And it's very scary. I think the longer you go, the further up you go, the less scary it gets. But it's never not scary in some way. But it's never disappointing. The call to this kingdom involves you and me leaving something behind. And so I just want to say to you in closing, before we come to communion, before we confess our sins, before we worship in, in the parking lot, what is the thing that you feel like right now God is saying, would you put this on the table and re-examine this with me? Would you just, with a spirit of curiosity, be willing to just lay it down and we can look at it together? Because I'm calling you to something that is going to be more for you. And so Jesus, I pray that we would have the courage and the willingness and the humility to listen to that call. I pray, God, that as we, um, as a church right now, are um, in the middle of so much around us, so much that is shifting and changing for our church, for our country, that the thing that would be solid and consistent throughout all of it would be our dependence and our willingness to listen to your voice, to heed your call so that we might become your disciples. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you in a couple minutes. Hope, to, hope you will join us outside for worship and communion. Grace and peace to you. Also, hope to see you tonight on the Zoom call, 730. You're loved. <laughs>